Hello everyone, welcome back to Inking Out Loud. Today's episode is number 37 and we begin our dive into The Fires of Heaven, book 5 of Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. More accurately, we're going to cover the first third of the book, which, as Drew mentioned last episode, covers the prologue and everything up through the end of chapter 16. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos. I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today we're joined by a recurring special guest who we've missed since our episodes on Stover, our own sound engineer, Mr. Pat McCaffrey. Pat, welcome back, my dude. Thank you. I never really left, though. I'm always no, you're lurking always in us. the shadows. And That's you were true. on you had... world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? Was, was he? Oh, my God. He totally was. What the hell am I thinking? Sorry, <laughs> Pat. Something, you know, something rang a little you. familiar to me when I actually wrote down the words, your first episode back since Stover. I was like, that doesn't sound quite right, but I couldn't think of what it was. Oh, well. You forgive yeah. me, right? Don't you? I do. I do. <laughs> Plus, you, you also that. had a couple of brief cameos. You popped in for a real quick second, I think during the asshole discussion, weren't you? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, and and the, and the uh, debate about uh, Lanfear or Rand using the portal stone. Yeah, it was It was, It was. was totally yeah. fucking Rand. It ha- yeah, obviously. But, Correct. You know, uh, wait, but, no, uh, Lanfear. I've actually come around on that. I Yeah, I, I, yeah Lanfear. After doing some more digging, I, I've come around and I believe it is Lanfear now. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Sweet. It's nice to be vindicated. But um, anyway, it's even, going it's forward, even nicer I to say... be back. Oh, sorry. For go a ahead. Real Pat. episode. It's. I was saying it's even nicer to be back for a real episode, and especially one of my favorite books in the Wheel of Time. Oh That's yeah. Why I wanted to be on this one in particular. This is an awesome oh, yeah. one that we're diving into, and Just, I want to say that you know, since we're not featuring a special guest today who hasn't read the entire series, our temporary restriction on spoilers has, of course, been lifted. Though. We are keeping in mind that the only spoilers we're going to discuss still should deal directly with the subject at hand. So, uh, now, without further ado, my man Drew is going to take it away with a quick recap of what we've read so far. Drew, blast us off, dude. Yeah. uh, Amusingly, even though we read a third of this book, uh, this book starts a little bit slower than The Shadow Rising did, uh, and The Dragon Reborn, for that matter. Um we we go back to the old trusty prologue where Robert Jordan catches us up on what's going on. We we kick off with Elida, who's always just a joy to get in her head, right? And uh, and we see kind of the state of things in her version of the White Tower. Uh, and we see that Pat and Fane has now arrived in Tarvalon, which is very you know uh, reassuring. Then we get our first Forsaken Social, which is not sarcastically uh, very enjoyable. Uh, and, and I always look forward to these scenes as the series goes on. Mm-hmm. But from there, we go into uh, um, a, a great little sequence with uh, Min and Swan and Liana. We find out they've been arrested for... Well, for Logan burning down a barn, and uh, and they're being judged by <laughs> uh, uh, Gareth Brine, and he sentences them to indentured servitude, essentially, and uh, and they eventually, with Logan's help, they break out and run away, and Brine decides, well, I'm gonna follow, uh, and and he he does so. He takes his armsmen and chases after them. They pass through Lugard, where Swan discovers the location of the Rebel Aes Sedai gathering uh, through a classic scene at uh, an inn in Lugard. Um, and that's about where we, we end off with them. 
But then, meanwhile, Rand and Matt and Avienda and Moiraine and Egwene and Lan and all the rest are in Roydian. After the events of the Shadow Rising, the Aiel are sort of finding their feet. We hear about this thing called the Bleakness, which is taking many of the Aiel, where they they can't cope with the fact of their true history, and so they cast away their spears and abandon clan and sept and um. Uh, yeah, and and pretty much right away there, we have some some politicking, and that goes straight into a Darkhound attack. Uh, attack, and Rand uses Balefire, and we discover just what Matt's medallion can do. Um, and uh, yeah, and and so they find out. Uh, basically, the last thing that we got from them is that the Shido are on the move. They're heading over the Jangai Pass. And the rest of the clans who aren't allied with Rand are also heading that way. And so Rand and company are getting ready to leave. And then our last big uh, plot line follows Nynaeve and Elaine and Tom and Julin as they're leaving Tarabon after uh, all the unrest in Tanchico and taking care of the Domination Band. And they cross the border into Amadicia. They are accosted and nearly captured by a Yellowaja eyes and ears named Ronde Makura, who has discovered a weed that can negate channeling. Uh, and they have a, a, a narrow escape there, and they continue on down the road, and they arrive at a town called Sienda, which is overrun by white cloaks and has a menagerie, a traveling circus outside. So that's about where we are. Yeah. Lots happening with our with our characters and their respective narratives, you know. Uh, like, we have everything happening with Rand, we have Egwene, we have Moiraine, everybody on the other side of the spine of the world. And, of course, on the other side of the world, we have Elaine and Nynaeve and their, in their flight from Tanchiko and their confrontation with the Black Aja and Mogedian. Um, so much happening to discuss. I, I kind of just want to dive straight into style right away. Um, and, sorry, Pat, go ahead, dude. Before we do, yeah, dude. Who else thinks that fork root is actually marijuana? Because I, I do. Never that got that impression. Me, that caught me last time I was reading this book. The way fork root, think about that as as it okay. would be in a flower. The effects that um, Elaine. So I think it's her point of view that we get this from, right? The effects that she describes are not at all dissimilar to the effects of taking that particular drug. <laughs> and it would be kind of a delicious joke that if that is what Robert Jordan intended with this, that this, this real-world thing has properties that negate the one power uh, in a different age. Well, my next so, question, okay. my follow-up would response would be, have you ever tried pot, uh, pot, Pat? Of course I have. I live in Colorado. Okay. Uh, Drew, what about yourself? You don't, you don't strike me as someone who's I, ever partaken. I have I have never used marijuana in any form. Okay, Pat, what kind of crazy stepped on shit did somebody give you? Pat, pot doesn't do that to people. It doesn't make you not be able to channel, because we can't channel. It made like if you if but you take too her... much, if you eat it, eat too much, or smoke way too much, it's too strong. Depending on the on the plant, it can make you very very tired. Burn you yes, out, string you're you gonna out. Get, you're going to get really woozy. But um, it's a lazy tired. It's not like an inability to move your body tired. That's just because um, they, are, they are channelers. It has an extra effect on them because they can touch the one power. It's mentioned that 
that other people like if you if you just have any old person drink fork root, like a nine nothing ten will or? happen. Make, yeah, yeah nothing know, will if happen. You make right? a tea out of it. And before That's I get into a, so, a big point about Nynaeve I want to get into into later, just to make sure I'm understanding Forkroot correctly, Drew, this is one of my questions for you, before we actually okay. get there. Um, Forkroot affects different people, different channelers, depending on their strength in the one power. Am I remembering that correctly? Um, like, those who are stronger in the I one power are much more susceptible? I don't think so. I don't you think don't so. think so? Okay, because I was going to make I a point about that later. in general channeling, uh, it, it hits you. Um, well, differently than yeah, if you can't right. channel. Like, take an Adon, for example. It's not more effective over one channeler than it is over another. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but so, back to Pat's point... Sorry, yeah, go ahead. ...about um, the potential for this being marijuana. I I think maybe there might be some, like, inspiration that he took from it, but I do not think it is. And the biggest reason is because it tastes minty. Mm. Forkert tastes minty. Well, he, Jordan has Marijuana to insert a way for them not. to detect it in the future, though, right? He had to he had to give it some sort of notable presence, well, right? Well, I feel like marijuana has a pretty distinct... Uh, but, <laughs> I suppose you could have gone for skunky, I suppose. Yeah, the yeah. Minty, yeah, yeah, Minty looks better on the page than skunk ass. Dang. But, like, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying, like, mint is nothing like marijuana in, like, aroma or flavor. Not even You close. know, like, yeah. so I, that is why I do not think it Plus is it's marijuana. Plus, it's called fork root, okay. not fork flour yeah but if you if you're they're making a tea out of it to me that implies a leafy plant right oh, where yeah. the roots come like, in it's for I, roots. I don't know well well uh, some it's just uh, you have to talk to a botanist about this kind of thing i'm as far as plot goes i'm as close of... as one gets to a botanist at least <laughs> like but people come up with all kinds of crazy names. For I'm a mad scientist, that, and, and I yeah. haven't really discussed this on the podcast before. But I have been, I, mean, I have lots of experience with marijuana. Being in Canada, being it legalized here, I was a licensed patient for years before it was legalized. So I, as far well, as pot, you, you've worked for a, a yes. marijuana manufacturing. Yes, company. I did yeah. work for uh, for a few <laughs> months for what I think at the time they, I almost said we, they were the largest pot producer in the world. Wow. I actually was a I was on the uh, joint rolling squad crazy. for two months. <laughs> JTF one represents um, joint task force. But yeah, yeah, task force. <laughs> anyway, um, very good. I do think we should move on. Yes, uh, I don't think there's a ton of style to discuss with this book that we haven't already covered. But there are right um, a couple of things I do want to point out. Uh, one of them is it is notable that we are back to prologues mm -hmm. um but interestingly this prologue is very short uh it, it becomes a trademark of the wheel is of time though? as the series goes on it, yeah it's very short there, there are only two points of view in the prologue but they're like it's like a 30 page prologue isn't it that's pretty long well, i mean as far as most prologues um, go maybe not for the wheel of time it's not very the long. prologue in my book starts on page 13 and ends on page 37. So it is a 24-page prologue. Oh, yeah, that's not very long. As far and as there are only goes. two points of view. We have Elida in the tower and then uh, Robin during the Forsaken yeah, Social. Yeah, we have a Forsaken Social. Our first and, Forsaken uh, Social, isn't it? Yes. Sweet. Um, I love these. But as you'll see with uh, later prologues, you know, things like the Winter's Heart prologue and Crossroads of Twilight and... and books later in the series, we get prologues like 80, 90, 100 plus pages, and we get like 10 different points of view, a dozen different points of view that catch us up on all of these disparate events. And even in uh, The Shadow Rising, where we didn't have a prologue, 
but chapter one was structured more like a prologue, we had several different points of view over that chapter. You know, we had a yeah. uh, uh, we had Min, and we had like Dane Bornhold and the Two Rivers, and we, we had, had Suroth, didn't we? Uh, and we had uh, Suroth out on Cantorin, and uh, you know, so we we jumped around more in that non-prologue than we do in this return to the prologue format. Uh, and then, even though this prologue is very short, these early chapters are very long. Chapter one is like 40 pages. And that's uh, the one that starts off with like Swan and, and Min and uh, Liana going before, you know, uh, Gareth Bryan in Core Springs. And, uh, and, and in general, these chapters early in the book are long. Uh, we, we've covered in my book uh, about 320 pages and we did 16 chapters in, uh, so we're averaging 20 yeah, pages a chapter. It's pretty big. Uh, and in the second episode we're going to be doing for next week, we're going to be covering again, about 320, 324 pages and it's 24 chapters. It is 50% longer. Yeah or 50% more chapters for the same page count. So as the uh, the narrative momentum increases in this book, right, the chapters right. we're going to see start getting a lot shorter. Where, you know, we read 16 chapters over a third of this book. There are a total something like 56 or 58 chapters in this book. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I just found that really interesting, how the early part of The Fires of Heaven is structured, uh... And, and how it's paced with word count. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up um, the fact that, you know, with with a lot of our style points, we a lot of them have been kind of talked over uh, in the past because I was struggling to come up with new style points to discuss in this episode. Um, but mm -hmm. since we're still on the prologue, I do want to talk about Jordan's choice of our point of view characters in that prologue, specifically with Elida. I want to talk about how perfect yeah, of a choice okay. I thought it was to begin our prologue with a point of view from Elida. Because if you remember, ever since the Eye of the World, she's been this kind of really vague threat waiting in the wings. Until we got to the final third of the Shadow Rising, when she makes her move and she casts down Swan Sanche. You know, that that powerful and decisive move brought her from what I consider to be a, a third-tier threat immediately to the top-tier threat to Randall Thor. And starting this next book with, like, a more intimate look at her maneuvering from her seat of power, uh, I thought was appropriate. Um, of course, her takeover didn't go as smoothly as she'd hoped, so there's a lot of fallout for her to deal with, as we expected. But Elida do Avenry Arroyhan brings, like, the White Tower... Several steps higher in our ever-increasing list of things that are a threat to Randall Thor. And I, I, I just, right. I figured if this was like a chess game, opening with this prologue was the equivalent to Jordan just suddenly, and without ex expectation, moving his queen across the board. It's like, oh, whoa, okay, hang on. Something big might be on the way. We have to look out. And then there's the double whammy of having Robin yeah. right after, who is <laughs> an even bigger threat. You know, you have your lawful evil yes. threat, and you have your chaotic evil threat, if you want to look at it that way. And, and, well, and it's more than that, too, because this is the first time we see the Forsaken openly working together. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and they address how easily Rand seems to be taking out others of the Forsaken when they're alone, and when they're isolated, you know, and, and taking a selfish approach, and Lanfear is espousing teamwork, which is 
as Ravan notes, a rather novel idea for the Chosen. But I do want to go back to uh, Elida in, in this scene, because, uh, Rob, you're absolutely right in, in what a great uh, like macro-level choice it was to give us an Elida point of view mm. right away. But on a micro-scene level, it was also very interesting how he constructed that, because Elida is our point-of-view character, but she doesn't say a word for like the first ten pages. She just sits there and watches and reacts and fumes <laughs> And, and it, it gives us a great idea, an even better idea, of just what Elida's like and what she's going to be like going forward in this new tower that she's uh, built, for lack of a better word. Um, we see what her relationship with Alviarin is becoming, and we see how... Uh, the rulership of the tower is going, where, where there's this council that Elida assembled and it has already lost control you know she's and she's frustrated and she doesn't understand she why she's not being respected the way she believes she should be yeah so it, there it's like a uh kind of killing two birds with one stone authorial choice to make elida the point of view character for that scene and to construct the scene around her in the fashion that he did yeah because it's strange to start a book off with a point-of-view character who doesn't do anything. Like, for the first ten pages, our point-of-view character doesn't do anything. She just sits there and watches other people making the decisions. Yeah, if I were to describe it, I would say that was deft, yet masterful in its execution. Sure. Yeah, and uh, moving on to the the Forsaken social, I, I do want to specify, I consider like the, the Forsaken and the fact that they're working together... That's a second-tier threat on my arbitrary sort of system, like, in the list of things that are a threat to Randolph Thor. It's, it's, it's obviously more visceral, it's obviously more dangerous than, like, you know, the White Tower. But we, we can still get the sense that the Forsaken are planners. They have their fingers deep in the, in the workings of the world. They're not really ones to charge the forefront. I, I would say the most dangerous things to Randolph, of course, are the Madness right? And the Shadow Spawn sure. who are trying to attack them. This kind of stuff. Um, well, but those Shadow Spawn are... I suppose they're on the, on the orders of by, the Forsaken. Yeah. Aren't they? <laughs> yeah, Ravin might be a little closer to the forefront in terms of a threat to Randall Thor. Lanfear, I mean, obviously especially a huge one. Maybe, in, yeah, actually, now that I think on it. Forsaken in this book, Ravin and Lanfear are the principal antagonists. Yeah. So, and yeah. Kuladin, I suppose. But. And, well, yeah, Kuladin. That guy. Oh, my God. I can't wait till we get to... Uh, rant about him in the future yeah. Um, yeah but more and more as like we continue this journey through the wheel of time episodes this is harkens back to something you just mentioned previously drew i am glad that you that you mentioned there are certain things that we're you know not going to be able to keep discussing unless we sound kind of you know uh redundant yeah beating um, a dead horse <laughs> right beating <laughs> beating that horse into the ground if you will um his foreshadowing though i wanted i still want to like, oh, sorry, not his foreshadowing. These are things that I had listed as things that we had already talked about. You know, we already talked about his foreshadowing. We've talked about his, what I consider his formulaic approach with yep. metaphor when he's describing people's expressions, right? These things that span the entire series. But I still want to mention that Jordan is utilizing the hell out of dramatic irony. And this is something I just brought up in the previous episodes. I didn't oh, yeah. really mention this before The Shadow Rising. And this is mostly in Min and Swan's narrative as they're being chased by Gareth Bryn. Um, this poor guy, is, well, actually, it's 
Gareth Brynn, I would say it's from his point of view that we see this uh, most obviously. He's completely messaging. Messaging? Oh my god. Missing all of the messages that the pattern <laughs> is sending to him. For example, he's preparing to leave Core Springs. He's thinking already. He's actually actively thinking about Maratomanus and Serenla and I forget Liana's fake name and Dalin, you know, the the actual, you know, false dragon. When one of his men returns from New Bram with news that the Amerlin Swan Sanche has been deposed and apparently executed as well as the false dragon Loghain. Mm-hmm. Right when he was thinking about that, right? And then in chapter 12, an old pipe, one of his men starts telling a story about Bryn's yep. encounter with the Amerlin over this border dispute, some sort of border dispute with the Mirandians, yeah, which yeah. for some reason or another prompts Bryn to start thinking about the strength of the woman who is Swan Sanche. Like, he's just so close to the answer, but he's got no way of seeing what's in front of his nose. And I, I just, I love that, that feeling that it evokes in the reader. Well, and, sorry, go and ahead. And even in uh, the chapter before that, uh, when Swan herself goes and uh, meets with Mistress Tharn, uh, yes. the eyes and ears, and and she says Duranda, right? Duranda Tharn, that's her yes. name. Yes. Uh, she she's Nine like, oh, I saw the uh, I saw the Amerlin one time myself, and like <laughs> and and like makes some comment about oh, she's like a raging harridan or something like that, and Swan's just like. Mm. Would that be dramatic you know? <laughs> irony, though? Because Swan is aware of what's... Oh, no, but Mistress Tharn is not aware. Yeah, Mistress Tharn is not aware. Is not aware. Point. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I didn't even consider that one. Yeah, she has no idea that she's talking to Swan Sanche about Swan Sanche. Yeah. You know? uh, and I will I will note, this is something I'll touch on a little later about the inns in Lugard. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, I, I do appreciate how... Robert Jordan uses dramatic irony. He he knows that it, he has a theme building here, right? With miscommunication. And that's, I think, a big part of why some readers get frustrated with this, these books. Because we know the details. The characters don't. Mm-hmm. And to us, when we see the whole big picture it seems like, oh, this would be such an easy thing to solve. But on the uh, the much smaller level that the characters themselves are dealing with, A, um, it's not the easiest thing in the world at this tech level to just, like, talk to somebody across the world. Yes, they develop, you know, things like traveling as we go on to help with, with communication. But the other thing is, a lot of the time, they don't even know, like they need to be asking questions. They don't know the questions to ask, put it that way. So even if they were communicating, they might not have the information required to communicate in the right way. Yeah. And that, and that builds off of this underlying dramatic irony that he, he has developing over the course of the series. And and you can even take it a step further and say that, yeah, the premise of magic tricks, why they work on everybody is because you're, you naturally expect certain things in the course of yes. real events. And you have no reason to suspect that something might be afoot. Okay. Um, like, like Gareth Brynn has no reason to suspect that this person who happened to be involved mm. in this incident is actually Swan Sanchez. Well, he was just told be... in the same scene that she's been executed. So I think so Jordan gave exactly. well, gave yeah, that character exactly. the excuse that we needed so but, that we wouldn't think Bryn's being too much of an idiot. 
Well, but even if he hadn't just heard that, like, why would anybody ever expect the Amerlin seat to be part of, like, a well, barn arson it's, in it's, backcountry it's, Andor? In this case, I wouldn't say it's so much about expectation as it was the fact that Swan was just worried he would recognize her voice. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I, again, one, as far as we know, there was only one meeting between the two before this. I mean, that's yeah. understandable from Swan's perspective, because that would be a disaster for her, but... Yeah. It's quite an irrational fear at the, the same time. The most wanted woman alive. So, yeah, it's it's kind of in character there. And Swan does have plenty of irrational fears, so it's not exactly out of character <laughs> for her. True, yeah. very true. Um, the, as far as the end of my style points that I wanted to, to discuss, I just, ha- I just have two metaphors that Jordan used. I think I'm going to start, you know, uh, pointing these out in the future. I mean, I have already. But a couple metaphors that he used in the first third of this book that I really enjoyed. First one being, I think it was one of the wise ones that said it. Uh, they said, Kuladin was a bull with his, with a bee in his ear, ready to charge in any direction. Mm-hmm. I love that little metaphor. I thought that was pretty cool. And I think my favorite so far, perhaps in this series, I think was in chapter two. A note was near the beginning. It is when uh, Egwene and Warren are confronting Rand, or at least you know, talking to Rand in the presence yeah. of Jason uh, Natal. I would call it confronting. What's sorry? I would call that confronting. Things got yeah, pretty Yeah, it was, well, in more in the, in, the, in the case of Moiraine, he was definitely confronting, I would say. Yeah. Um, but there was, there was one line that Jordan used, and he said, the two women looked at Rand as if butter would not melt in their mouths. I love that metaphor. Hmm. I thought it was perfect. I thought it was perfect. So yeah, yeah. That, that is good. I, I like that. That's the end of he, my. He style always discussion. has had a, a way with words, you know. Like he does, without a doubt. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's let's dive into character discussion here. Yes, let's. Um, and I want to get this out of the way. Okay. So let's start with Egwene. Oh. <laughs> now I see why you said get it out of well, the way. Well, it's yeah. only uphill from here then. Yes. So <laughs> I would say this so. this is where I really start disliking Egwene. Same. And there's a key scene here, and this is one of the things that that like really unsettles me the most about Egwene. And it is in chapter I think fifteen. What Ooh. can be learned in dreams? So late. Okay. Yeah, chapter 15, what can be learned in dreams? So she has just met with Nynaeve with Melaine uh, oh. watching over her. Yeah, and I know where you're going with this. Okay. They leave, and Nynaeve <laughs> goes to the tower, and then Egwene shows up. And, and Nynaeve, the first thing she says, let me find the quote. She's kind of accusatory toward Egwene, where she's like, she says, so the wise ones have finally decided to let you come and go as you please? Oh, yeah. Or is Melaine behind and she and she gets cut off by Egwene? And as and for the rest of this conversation, Egwene doesn't let her finish a single sentence. Yep. Because Egwene realizes in this huh. moment that Nynaeve is starting to realize just how much Egwene herself is breaking the rules and disobeying uh, the wise ones. Yes. And Egwene starts going off about how Nynaeve is a fool for mm-hmm. sneaking away into the world of dreams and doing things by herself. And Egwene, to prove a point, summons a rape nightmare on Nynaeve. 
she summons two fanged, like, rape demons who start tearing Nynaeve's clothes off and clawing her skin and pulling her hair. Like, that is such an insane thing to do. Like, you know, and, and then, of course, because Egwene is Egwene, who shouldn't be off by herself and is being a huge hypocrite in this scene, she loses control of the rape demons. Like, and, yeah, who and, could have wait, seen that coming? She loses control yes. of them. At what point? Yes. They vanished yeah. when she wanted them to. They they didn't vanish when when she wanted them to. Uh, they, they do more. They do more than uh, Egwene wanted. But of oh. course, in in the moment, Egwene acts like you know. But of course, you know, like does. they're they're full on like I Except mean Nynaeve, this description like the other seized Nynaeve's chin in a horny, calloused hand and twisted her face toward him. His head bent toward her, mouth opening. Whether to kiss or bite, she did not know, but she would rather die than allow either. Thick fingernails dug into her cheeks. Like, you know, coarse flesh, drooling mouths full of sharp, yellowed teeth. Like, and, I mean, it's it's insane. Like, this is an absolutely insane thing for a human being to do, much less to somebody they consider one of their best friends. Right. Uh, and it's all because Egwene doesn't want Nynaeve to follow along this logical train and realize, you know, like just how badly Egwene is betraying the wise one's trust. And this gets followed up by another scene later in this book where Nynaeve finally does put it together and she's about to accuse Egwene and, and is saying she's going to tell the wise ones. And Egwene again assaults her and like stuffs her mouthful of the like sheep's tongue root. So Nynaeve, and to distract her, to get her off that train of thought. Mm. Like, these are the issues I have with Egwene. She's A, being a hypocrite in this scene, and B, going way violent, way overboard, with C, somebody she considers or is given to us as one of her best friends, one of her closest confidants in the world. Role model, even. Like, like this, this scene right here is insane to me. Okay. And these are the kind of things that I cannot stand about Egwene. Compare okay. something very similar that um, happens with Rand often throughout the series. Like, when Rand loses control of his power and he wants to show Egwene and Elaine, for instance, mm-hmm. in The Shadow Rising, what does he do? Oh, he picks them up into the air and melts a bunch of shit. <laughs> As opposed and he, to... And he immediately... He sees them off in the source. And he immediately yeah. apologizes. Screams at and, them. And, you know, and he's like... He's Oops. like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's Egwene true. here acts like, nothing's wrong. Oh, by the way, you go do this now. Okay. Like, it, oh. so, no, it, is, <laughs> it is it, sorry, infuriating. It's, it, it's infuriating, you're right, Drew. And the fact that people will inevitably try and defend the indefensible when it comes to Egwene doing things like this makes it even more frustrating. Okay. Um, yeah. So... You've given me a lot to say because listening to your rant there, Drew, I went into it. I, I liked how you started it. I was agreeing. I was agreeing. I was agreeing. Then I started to disagree a little bit. I started to disagree a little more. I agreed really, again, briefly. Um, but overall, I think you're I think you're being a little too harsh. And let me, let me justify that. She summoned a rape nightmare on yes. her friend. <laughs> let me justify that, okay? <laughs> Um, so, how do you justify it? I will. We'll You'll, find, see. Let's, You'll see. Let's okay? find out. I want to. <laughs> let me just dig this hole a little deeper, my friend. Uh, Egwene is still Egwene. 
And it does continue to bother me on the surface. I don't despise her yet. And I do have some complimentary things to say about her. To begin, she's really starting to hit her stride in her training with the Wise Ones. And yeah, okay, despite her flouncing of their strict rules about the exploration of Teleronriad on her own, um, her learning about the World of Dreams is accelerating hand-in-hand with her learning about herself. I will say that seeing her dress down Nynaeve when I was a teenager, maybe not now, but definitely when I was a teenager, scolding Nynaeve like a child felt awesome because, let's be real, Nynaeve deserves at least a little bit of it. The scolding, the scolding in particular, right. that's all I'm talking right. not about. Not from Egwene, though. <laughs> not from Egwene, but she, she, she needs to hear it from somebody. I will yeah, say, who Egwene... Has legitimate uh, authority and legitimate... Uh, may have... Call to dress naive down. Yeah, I will say Egwene may have taken it a little too far. <laughs> but <laughs> what else is to be expected from a young woman who has finally learned to speak up for herself and confront old figures of authority, especially when she is in the right? Not with what she is doing. Her actions I, here I are say... reprehensible. But Nynaeve needs to be taught a lesson about Teleron Riyadh. She feels too safe. She feels too secure in there. Egwene legitimately does fear for Nynaeve's life or more. So I can see why she would like. There this are, there are like many, many other ways you can go about teaching yes, her that lesson agreed, that do not agreed. cross the line of common decency agreed. and then go way into the hinterlands this of outright evil. Sort would, of I, feels <laughs> like something that the wise ones would do, though. To yeah. And punish they do somebody do. in Teleron Riyadh. Of course, they would have much more mastery well, well, over the world of dreams, and so, therefore so here, would be able to stop compare. it from going too far. Let's compare when okay. the wise ones think Egwene needs to learn a lesson about going off. Holy f- Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> when when the wise ones see that Egwene is like disobeying them and going off by herself and they decide to teach her a lesson. They have, you know, like they like right she has this like dream within a dream where she wakes up in her tent and a meese is sitting there and a meese turns into a demon. Yes. Oh yes. Okay? Right. All she does is appear that way. She doesn't actually summon demons to attack Egwene. She just scares her to say, look, this is what you don't understand. These things are possible here. Egwene takes it ten steps further and creates things that, A, aren't herself. Amis just changed her own appearance. That's ignorance, To scare Egwene. That's not, like, maliciousness. I, I, I would very much argue... Anybody who would even think about, like, summoning rape demons so okay, so to teach somebody else a lesson, that is absolutely not just ignorance. My response... That's absolutely malicious. To that would be, what then is the line that you draw? What's the difference between, like you said, Amis uh, attacking uh, Egwene in the World of Dreams, or not attacking her, but scaring her, like, almost the literally the life out of her, and making her think she's going to die. Or, take another example, Hopper lunging at Perrin's throat, and Perrin waking up and reaching for his throat to clamp in lifeblood, what he thinks he, he like, Hopper making Perrin think he's going to die, and Hopper is a literal Egwene making animal. Nynaeve think <laughs> she's about to be raped. <laughs> Hopper is a wolf. He's yeah. a wild animal. That's not even remotely comparable. Like, <laughs> okay, Emis made Egwene think she was video. going to die. Just because as a he's lesson. anthropomorphized and given like Hopper made Perrin think he was going to die as a yeah, lesson. Because Hopper is a wild Egwene animal. Makes That's a how wild animals she's going communicate. To be raped. But no, Rob, Rob, it's a good, <laughs> not it's a to good... downplay that at all in any way. But it's just I can see that being the foolish decision of a naive 
teenager. I mean, you defended Fael when I was I, I attacking Fael endlessly. I can't in the previous write episodes. off that as simple naivete. Like, well, I can't write off Fael's uh, actions in the Dragon Reborn as being simple naivete. But you argued, you know, her age does have a lot to do with it, right? I'll say the same nothing thing. Nothing Fael did in the Dragon Reborn is even remotely like even summoning no, rape you're right. demons. You're absolutely on, right. Like, I'm not going to claim that at like, all. Like, like this, this one scene, and, and like I'm harping on this hard because I have strong feelings about this. Like, sure. like sexual assault, in particular, like, like th that is one of the most horrific things you can do as a human being. Yeah, and so is and murder. And Egwene, the first. Thing she goes to when dealing with her best friends is sexual assault. So would you? Would it have been better if these demons just like strung Nynaeve up by the hair and held a knife to her throat and made her think she was about to die? Would no, that have been different. That's also assault. Like, how is that different from what Amis did to Egwene? Because Amis didn't do anything to her. She just changed her own appearance. She didn't attack. But Egwene could do nothing, nothing but attacked. shriek and shriek as the as the jaws clamped around her face. I mean, they didn't actually touch her, but she thought no. she was going to die. Horrifically. She didn't physically do anything to Egwene. Nynaeve is going to wake up from this with claw marks on her face yeah, that's and fun. bleeding marks on her chest. And like, yeah. like, but there is a difference there, major difference is there. Is Egwene's ignorance <laughs> okay. more than it is maliciousness? She yeah. just couldn't no, control no, the dream well enough. She thought she could. And that, that and is that, is, against her that only makes it worse because that makes her a hypocrite because the whole reason she did this was saying, Nynaeve, you need to be taught a lesson because you don't understand the dream well enough when yeah. Egwene herself doesn't understand the I dream well I fully agree enough. with that. There are other like, lessons and that was but quite... No, but no, Rob, it's a fair and good question that you raise when you say, okay, where's the line? There's two things that we can do to establish where that line is. The yeah. first we only kind of barely touched on and that's the question of authority. Egwene doesn't actually have any legitimate authority to teach anyone anything. Yes. As agreed. far as the world of dreams is Fully concerned. Agreed. So she's not justified in doing anything in, 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 uh, with that viewpoint. But, you know, let's just let's smooth that okay. aside for now. Um, if you grant that she's allowed to do something, the line should be the, the, the place where it is possible for, some, for serious consequences to occur or not like serious physical injury to occur or not like Amise is on one side of that line because a she had control yep and the authority and you know stopped whatever her demonstration before it could do anything but Egwene lacked the finesse uh, to stop things getting out of hand and she also put a situation in play that was just out of hand by its very nature. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if I think that's a fair line and I think we can all fairly say that Egwene's on the wrong side of it. Yeah. In this one. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, you guys are interpreting that as maliciousness more than ignorance though. And that's to the uh, that's the only I'm point not that saying I necessarily she was like I want to see Nynaeve raped like that, but I think it says something about Egwene's character that the first thing she goes to is such an extreme form of violence. Like and yeah. and that is and that is something we're going to see we've seen in the past with Egwene and we're going to see in the future. She's trying to and do what the wise one did to her except time she she goes she goes way overboard yeah, with it. Yeah. And she goes a different direction with it and way overboard because yeah. of her ignorance. Yeah. And and so going back to like why I feel so strongly about this scene like it, I I think, as far as 
the non-evil people in these books. This is one of, if not the most reprehensible thing any of our main characters does in the series. Agreed. Uh, the top three. There, um, I would say we're going to have another very similar conversation in A Crown of Swords about another uh-huh. character who uh, partakes in sexual assault. And that's another thing that like, I feel very, very strongly about. Um, yep. you know, but like, there, there are certain things that like, really boil my blood in fair this enough. series. That's fair. And this scene is one of them. That's absolutely fair. And so. you know, now that I've spent 10, 12, 15 <laughs> minutes defending Egwene, I can't believe I just did that. That'll <laughs> never happen again, I promise, because there is still a list of things I don't like about Egwene that I that I want to get out of the way on this episode, too. We're not done, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, Buckle God. up, everybody. Um, okay, so she's, like, as you mentioned before, Drew, hypocrisy. This is what I want to focus on. She is showing a lot more hypocrisy and willful ignorance than I remember reading at this point. Um, for example, chapter 5, Among the Wise Ones. There's a point when one of the wise ones says, after uh, Avienda was, was sent out on an errand, one of the wise ones says, More steam, girl. And Egwene kind of zones out for a second. And then she jumps, realizing, oh, with Avienda gone, they must mean me. So this this can logical line can only be followed that if Avienda was still around, they definitely would have been talking to her. Because an Aes Sedai of the Green Aja, after all, outranks a proto-wise one, right? <laughs> am, I, am I a little, like, Obviously. unjustified there? Yeah. Like, did, did, am I stretching a little bit? Because I, I realized <laughs> no, writing no, I that down the second going. time. I see where you're going. It might be a bit of a stretch to assume that Egwene would assume Avienda was the one they were talking to if she was present. But, I don't know, that just kind of struck uh, me but as... But that logically follows. A, not, a, not a red flag, but a orange flag. You know? Yeah. Um, but... Um, I, I, I want to take a, a brief break from bashing Egwene to say that okay. there is one scene in this that I really appreciated, uh, and I think this is like kind of the other side of the Egwene coin, uh, and that is when she and Avienda are punished and forced to run around the camp yep. 50 times. Oh, I was considering writing this down. Um, and and this is this is Egwene's probably like greatest virtue is that she is a hard worker. Yes. She is willing to suffer indignities in her pursuit of her goals. Uh, that that she she is not somebody who's going to shirk. She's not somebody who's going to um, step down from a challenge. Uh, and, and I think that is an admirable trait to have in a person. But, like I said, it, it becomes... Um, more problematic when in combination with some of her other attributes, like her arrogance and her hypocrisy. Uh, but but in that scene, I, I always really enjoyed that scene. Um, it told, I think, in, in a very small span, it tells you a lot about Avienda, mm-hmm. and it tells you a lot about Egwene. Yeah. And it's a really touching, like, friendship moment where you can see them becoming closer because they are sharing in these hardships together. Hmm. Pat, any uh, anything positive to say about Egwene before I continue shitting on her? Uh, <laughs> when she deals with Rand, yeah, her heart is in the right place, but she goes about it in the com- 
the like the most asinine, wrong, <laughs> obviously misguided method that you could pick. Like, like you grew up with this person and you don't understand at this point that bitching at him is not going to work. In fact, it's going to make him more stubborn. Like, yeah, there's yeah. a certain uh, like, but but she does try and do the right thing. Like I said, her method is just gassed. Reprehensible. It's arrogant in a way, her method. Oh, very That she thinks that dressing down Rand like he's a child is actually going to work. There's a a remarkable lack of self-awareness with Egwene. Oh uh, my god, yes. where, Where you know, like, the way she treats other people, if they treated her that way, like, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you, like, like, does not exist yes. for Egwene. Yes. I am you so know. glad. I'm there's, so glad you brought up her lack of self-awareness. There's do unto others before they do unto me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh my god. Okay, so uh, my, my last point that I wanted to talk about Egwene is, is the point at which I got most frustrated with her. And Drew, as you just mentioned, this is the perfect jumping off point when you're discussing her lack of self-awareness and her staggering level of hypocrisy. I got really frustrated with Egwene um, around chapter 7 because up until this point in the book, we've now learned that she has intruded upon Ruark's dreams, where she felt Mm -hmm. belittled, Matt's dreams, which offended her, Kadir's dreams, which (laughs) really, really offended her, Um, Isandre's dreams, which terrified her, and tried to to intrude on Rand's dreams, which baffled her. But there's this moment in chapter 7 when she thinks about Avienda's dream, namely the dream with the giant Rand on the giant Giant Giadine, and she feels guilty because spying on a friend's dreams is not right. I just paused my audiobook and I went, wow, girl, that is just... don't even right. I, it's, I, I it's don't nice to know that she doesn't view Rand or Matt as friends or Matt or yeah. Ruark or and any this goes the... to my like I've had a long standing point about Egwene over the course of the series where she tends to only feel connection to people when they can help her in her current goals <laughs> and once she achieves them she just moves on and abandons them and, and it's things like this like Rand she grew up expecting to marry this guy Mm-hmm. And she, you know he's like one of the people she is supposed to care about the most in the world, and she has no guilt over breaking in or trying to break into his dreams. But she has guilt over Avienda, who is currently involved in the same pursuit of a goal that she is. Yeah, agreed. You know, like it's things like that. Yeah, it it, it does come down to a lack of self awareness, um, and and hypocrisy ultimately, yeah. and. Speaking yeah. of Rand and Avienda... Yeah, I was just going to say, now that we've spent yeah. what's probably a third of our episode today bitching about Egwene, we should probably you know, move Rand, on to our... Rand doesn't change that much in this book, although it, he feels more relaxed and in control than he did in, like, ever... Like, this is the first time where it feels like he's he's starting to fit his shoes. But apart from that, yeah. I don't see any real uh, big differences. Well, there's... But his relationship with Avienda is the real interesting part of this book for me on subsequent mm. reads because I didn't understand it at all when I was a, when I was a young uh, lad reading this for the first time. Like, wait, 
Rand and Avienda are falling in love with each other? That doesn't make any sense. It didn't. Uh-huh. He str- she stresses Rand out, and Rand makes her go insane. Like, yeah. what's going on here? <laughs> he, he pokes and her. Now, he prods her a little bit on occasion, yeah. This is where we can uh, uh, be sure that there's a little bit of unreliable narration going on. With not only Rand, but Avienda. Neither of them think that they ought to fall in love with each other, but they end up going down that road anyway. Like, uh, from Avienda's point of view, Rand does have a lot going for him. Like, you know, he's he's obviously uh, a very uh, good-looking guy. He's commanding. He's the Karakarn. Um, but at the same time, he's a wetlander. And so she th- has this unconscious bias against him. Yeah. Like, oh, I can't. I couldn't. Look how ignorant this yeah, the wetlander savage is. feelings must, ha- must suck. And that's why I think his little gaffes with Aiel culture irritate her so much. Because on the she thinks that they ought to matter to her much more than they end up actually mattering to her as far as falling in love with him is concerned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Rand obviously is stuck on his, in his, his oh, I I can't love uh, <sighs> nonsense, but but Avienda has numerous appeals. I I think She's the the best of uh, I, I, Rand's we, harem. High five for many reasons. Like like oh. just briefly, physically for me, she's the perfect woman. Um, um and okay. she's you know the the other thing she has going for her is that she's not falling all over him like yeah. Elaine and Min. Like oh, I'm so in love with you. No, she's like no, I'm gonna I'm going to fight this. And that's mm-hmm. actually way more interesting and way more appealing for a man yeah. than someone, j- or like Barrelane or oh, Lanfear, yeah, 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 yeah. or the the horde of Kyrian and wenches oh. that we see later on. <laughs> that Colavir sends at <laughs> Rand in, uh, in what the Lord of Chaos? No, that's the end of this book. Oh, did they start at the end of this book? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm a little closer. Uh, uh, to... What's her face? Um... The, the girl who ends up... Yeah. Rand scares her, and then she founds Chafail. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's her... Oh, Soralia. Not Soralia. Uh, Sulin. No, not Sor... No, 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 no. no, no, no. Sulin's a maiden um, of the spear. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the it's the girl. No, it's yeah, the Kyrian in, like... Uh, oh, Chafail. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, f- yeah, I know I exactly you who you're talking about, but I, <laughs> oh my gosh. I forget her Doesn't name. it begin with an E? Anila. Uh, possibly. No, Anila's another... No, Anila's is Rand again. Shit. I... This is gonna drive me nuts, so I'm looking it up. Uh, but okay, Chafail, Chafail, yeah, the like Kyrian yeah, maidens of the sword, like yeah, yeah, they're founded by um, yeah, Colaver's handmaid. Oh, and after Colaver, Salande, uh, Salande, yeah, 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 got you. Okay. Um, Thank you. I, I needed to get that, that off my chest. Now that we've got that huge character out of the way, that's <laughs> really relevant character. Discussing Elaine versus Avienda versus Min, I'm I'm kind of closer to Rand's opinion that I, like I really can't decide which one appeals to me the most. I suppose. Um, I mean, Elaine mm. is obviously Elaine. You know, she's she's nobly born. She's got the she got the blonde, the the hair. Like you know, she's got the bearing. She's got the beauty from Morgays. Min just seems like somebody I could just sit down and just have fun with, have a beer with. You know, Min is somebody that you can hang out with. I I, I just Min is awesome. I love her 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 humor. But Avienda's got this whole exotic beauty thing going on, Drew. That you've talked she, about. She's, she's fiery. Tall. You know, she's like this extroverted. Yes. 
uh, you know, is going to be blunt with you. She's going to tell it like it is. Yes. Instead of bullshitting you around like Min and Elaine do all the time. Not Min tells it how it is, I would say, for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> I So and? Min is by far my least favorite of the three. Oh, uh, Min, Min, Not surprising, like, but interesting. Min is the kind of girl who... Uh, uh, who I did not get along with in high school. Um, same. And, and that was like, but about the same guy. I was my, in high school. my like formative, like points. Like I, I never had that. Like, Oh, I wish I could get along with these people. It's like, no, I don't like you. Like I did not like <laughs> girls who acted like men. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't get along where, with whereas, any girls, but that's not their fault. <laughs> <laughs> whereas like Avienda. Yeah. Like, like Pat was saying, like she, She's a straight shooter. She's uh, she's not gonna take any shit from you. Like if if you're gonna like you're gonna have a successful relationship with Avienda, you you need to, you need to meet her like, halfway. Yeah, you need to communicate. You need to uh, be on the same page. Yeah. And and as you said, yes, like the yeah. the physical like description of Avienda tall, appeals to me a lot. Like yeah, yeah. tall af- athlete basically. Like this like way, I'm six four. Like. You know, my wife is 5'9", Avienda's like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, Lauren's ten. only 5'9"? Like, she looks taller than that. Yeah, she's 5'9". I'm, I guess I guess I see yeah. her in heels when yeah. she's standing there. And honestly, like, this ties into it. If, uh, like, if we were to do the old, like, the, like, what me fan casting, you know, on, like, the Facebook group years ago where, oh, like, yeah? people were posting, like, selfies of themselves and then people would, like, cast them in the series. My wife, Lauren, totally would be a weight, uh, maiden of the spear. Oh, she's, yeah. Irish descent, blonde yep. hair, blue eyes, tall, athletic. Like, yep. <laughs> Can I confirm? Now, this might be like a wild tangent, also way TMI. <laughs> but one of the appealing things about Avienda to me is that I would like to be the kind of man that she would want to be with. Unlike. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. Okay. Unlike the kind of man that I expect Elaine would want to be with. So. In yeah. particular, like. Like a noble who's good at playing the game of houses. Uh, but will buckle under her. Will buckle under her, exactly. When necessary. <laughs> will be so, the bottom when she... Based on, her, based on her personality, you could say that her regard is, is valued higher than Elaine's or Min's. Mm-hmm. And to a lesser mm-hmm. extent... it's harder that, to achieve, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. To a lesser extent, that applies to Min as well, because at one point she does... Uh, list the attributes that she oh, yeah. thinks she ought An to older want man. in a man, right? and it's like some like poet or or like, yeah, like yeah, sophisticated, yeah. older, yeah. well-mannered gentleman, like sensitive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but no, I, I see what you mean. I there's like an aspirational element to yeah. like like if like, that's a part of wanting the whole to date a woman to or or be with a woman like Avienda means you should want to be a better man than you are. Yeah, you know, damn. Like, yeah, like, like you should want to improve yourself, and that's with Elaine. She no, has nobility. these high standards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, Elaine's I, got I high standards too. Well, no, Elaine does not have high high standards. Yeah, She's willing to in go my book, in trudging my book, through the rotten fish market in Falma. In my book, <laughs> the the kind of man that Elaine would want is not uh, the a kind of self-made. man I want to be. Well, that, but also a self-made man. Like that guy oh. could just be born coincidentally being the perfect match for oh. Elaine. Whereas for Avienda, you have to make yourself into that kind of person. Yeah. You have to have the discipline yeah. and the I think, intent. 
even during um, the Great Hunt, Elaine was ta- was talking to <clears throat> Egwene when she first met her in the White Tower about Randall Thor and how her mother probably wouldn't disapprove too much. I mean, you know, <laughs> nobility yeah. have married commoners in Andor before. Like, Elaine clearly doesn't have any biases about, you know, her station and, you know, who sh- like who's available to her as a potential lifelong uh, partner. I would, I would say that is very specific to Rand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And it just yeah. so happens that Rand is... Yeah. Yeah, it's not a problem the for son her of and Rand's Rain. relationship because he's <laughs> yeah. the dragon reborn and he's yeah. going to be so, a noble. Speaking of Rand, who we're still yeah, on. I was about to say, we, we went way off the deep end here. Let's reel let's, it back in and move on to Rand. Good, good, good. Um, I, I, I wanted to, to continue and say that at this point in the Wheel of Time, we're starting to get a closer look at the sanity of Randall Thor. And I think, it, I, mean, I thought it was really cool, obviously, and downright chilling at times, because we're seeing Rand start to manifest and even respond to, in some cases, memories from the Age of Legends, as the yeah. voice of Luz Theron starts to make itself known inside mm-hmm. of him. First off, hearing him call Moiraine little sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Was awesome. I was, like, straight up intimidated in, in at that moment. I was like, Moiraine! Moiraine, of all people, who we began with this, this as this figure of authority, and it just kind of now it just kind of slips out of him now, it's like yeah. in such a manner that both he and Warren are kind of temporarily taken aback by that comment, and I just thought it served as a really a great reminder of the difference in age and power between the two. And this time, when I say the two, I don't mean Warren and Rand, but Warren yeah. and Luz Theron. Right. No. Yeah, it's uh. It's interesting getting into Rand's head in the early parts of this book because we see how he's coping with his new like responsibilities and his sanity and uh or or lack thereof. Um <laughs> but it like nonetheless I find myself pretty much on the same page as Rand in these early chapters. Uh the only thing that makes me uneasy about how he handles things here is um, how he hides the Choiden call. Mm. Um, I I can't fully say he's not making the right choice there by not telling Moiraine about them. Um, I uh, that will change Ooh. later in the book when Moiraine. Interesting question. I want to ask you when Moiraine um becomes much more willing to work with Rand, like we see after the the Darkhound attack, you know, and all that. Um, and, and she, like, she ends up taking this, like, she swears, you know, like, and, uh, and she's more willing to meet Rand on a, on a level as equals as an advisor rather than a teacher or like an instructor. Um, and I mean that in like the literal sense of like, she wants to instruct him in what to do. Like you, Rand Althor must do this and this and this to achieve your destiny. She's recognizing now that, uh, you know, she can't do that. That doesn't work. And so she's willing to meet Rand and give him advice. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point, Rand should have told her about uh, the Choi call. Um, I'm less certain he should have told her about Asmodian. Sure. Obviously, she she figures it out yeah. eventually. Yeah. Um, but... Like I, I'm not sure that that would have made any kind of 
difference for the better for Rand had he told her about Asmodian and brought her into the confidence in, in that particular thing. Uh, but with the Troidan call specifically, I think uh, Moiraine could have been a good kind of ear for Rand to sound off on his ultimate plans with those. Uh, because as after she like comes to that realization of, I need to recognize that what I think isn't necessarily the way things are going to go, that she would have been pretty open-minded with Rand about his thoughts on using the Choidan call for specific things later in the series. So that's really my only frustration with Rand in the okay. early parts of this book. Okay. Um, and that, that's fair. Uh, I'm really glad you brought up Moiraine because a lot of my... It's, that's where I want to go next after we're done with Rand because a lot of my <laughs> discussion points with Rand and with Moiraine are in relation... Are, are in context with their relationship with one another. Um, and I, I want to say that I remember being satisfied as a kid when, you know, Rand was finally in a position to order Moiraine around. But I now see their relationship pretty differently. You know, uh, reading this with 27-year-old eyes rather than 13-year-old eyes... I'm getting more and more frustrated with Rand. Uh, I can see now that what I took for before as Moiraine's, you know, her just desserts, that she's given information piecemeal from Rand and spoken to as if she's she's the annoying bratty little sister. And then I stopped and I wrote down, oh, Luz Theron might be affecting Rand's personality more than I thought. But I am starting to see Rand's treatment of her now as the, the arrogant dickhead sort of 17 year old and I, I realize he's 19 or 20 at this point but that's kind of what i was like in my i can see in myself when i was 17 who thinks he's got it all figured out i mean and, and even if that wasn't the case and she did deserve that treatment rand really missed the opportunity to be like the bigger person and just treat her with kindness and respect you know? yeah i had a similar reaction yeah to you like i got i got uh... Mostly in this scenario with Rand and Moiraine, because as this, as the shadow rising and the fires of heaven progress, it's be it becomes more and more obvious that she's trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, like where, where Drew said, where she swears that oath, that's the moment that his resistance to her should have stopped. Just stopped. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's really when I get frustrated with him. I I do think you have a fair point, Rob. Uh, and I I I'm not as frustrated with it as you are. Uh, but but after she makes that overture to Rand, it frustrates yeah, the overture, that, that's a good way to put it. You know that 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 he doesn't in turn reach out to her more than he does. She extends that proverbial olive branch. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so that's the end of my discussion points for Rand. Does anybody else have anything more about Rand before we move on to Moiraine? Not for this section. No, yeah, let's let's talk about Moiraine, and, and I want to kick this off okay. uh, using my comments on Moiraine in part one of The Shadow Rising as a sort of springboard. Oh, here, yeah, okay. Where I talked about how much of Moiraine's character arc is predicated on her conflict with knowledge or lack thereof and how to interact and act upon her knowledge and how early in the shadow rising when rand announces i'm putting the sword back in the stone and i'm leaving you know he's like i'm i'm off i'm going to the idle waste and maureen has no idea how to react to it she's baffled 
you know, she had this whole plan set up for him to go invade Ilian and take down Samael with Kalindor, and she's like, this is a perfect opportunity and all that, and then Rand just flies off the handle, and she's like, she she doesn't have the knowledge anymore, because her interpretation of the prophecies, which was her kind of future knowledge touchstone at that point, is being proven incorrect. But now we see in, in these chapters, um, she once again has future knowledge. And she is altering her perspective, and she's altering her plans based on this, this new future knowledge that she acquired going through the rings in Roydian. Doing the, the wise one, you know, future deal. And, yeah. and she sees, you know, these potential consequences. She knows, <clears throat> I cannot try to manipulate Rand by sleeping with him, for instance. She's like, that will end in disaster. Yeah. Surprised uh, she considered and, it, honestly. Yeah. Um, Took me by surprise. And, and things like that. And so she... This is one of the points that I think shows Moiraine's strength of character. Is her willing <laughs> yes. to strength of character, uh, her willingness to humble herself because she like 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 this is a thing you know to go back to Egwene. If you put Egwene in Moiraine's shoes with this exact set of circumstances, I don't think Egwene ever would have done what Moiraine did here. Not even close. Like, Not like, even like close. Moiraine is so willing to. Um, yeah, to, like to humble herself and and to prostrate herself before and to admit that she was approaching things the wrong way. <clears throat> yep, she's dynamic that way. Her, yeah, her fundamental conviction that she's doing the right and necessary thing with her life's work, which she totally is. Yeah, is what gives her the strength to do this kind of mm-hmm. thing, which yep. seems weak only on the surface. But the more you analyze it, the more you realize, no, no, no. This takes a deeper kind of courage and a deeper kind of strength. Right. And and this is something that I I didn't pick up on through my dozens and dozens of rereads of this before, but but this time now approaching it from, you know, like as you said, I'm 29 now and and I have a different perspective on life and and I've seen how life doesn't necessarily align with the way I <laughs> m- planned things out yep. and uh, and and I've had to adapt to things and I've really appreciated Moiraine more uh in this read through uh it, it was it was just reading Shadow Rising that I kind of had that epiphany of this um Moiraine versus knowledge conflict that she has that's core to her character arc um and and that's given me a much greater appreciation for how she changes as a character and uh, how firm her foundation is as a person in the first place. Yeah. I'm so that glad. Was, that, yeah, that was nicely put. I'm, I'm so glad that you put it in exactly that way, in exactly those words, particularly the word strength of character and the way she's <laughs> willing to humble herself. Because as you're going to see, I have a lot to agree with. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'll start off with Moraine by saying this this okay this is the book where my childhood crush on Moraine turns into this more kind of mature respect and admiration for that woman cuz the the journey that she's on has taken her so far not just geographically speaking but in terms of her relationship with those around her 
So in the eye of the world, she was the mentor, the leader, the figure of authority and power who had all of the answers to to be sheltered under and protected by. Okay? Yep. Obviously, she didn't have a lot to do with uh, the Great Hunt in the Dragon Reborn. She wasn't with Rand for a lot of the time, but we, we did get some brief moments where we got to see she, like Moiraine and Rand arguing as equals for a change. The Shadow Rising saw her authority start to crack. You know, she allows Rand to deal with the High Lords and the ruling of Tyr and to deal with the Aeel in his own way. Um, but we did see some behind-the-scenes maneuvering to keep him safe on the path that she thinks he needs to take. But it wasn't until this book that we really begin to glimpse the depth of her devotion to her cause as she finally takes on this kind of humbled manner. And she's literally at one point begging Rand to listen to her advice. Yeah, um, and we we see this manifest in other ways too, as like her composure is tested. Her her, her composure as an Aes Sedai is tested time and time again. Her arrival in time to save Matt from the Darkhounds, or, or heal him at least, mm-hmm. was this might be a good time Sorry, go for ahead. a brief meditation on the differences between the blue Aja and the green Aja. Absolutely, like Warren is, is be, absolutely is, is the patriarch up. of the not the yeah. pa- like. You know the what matriarch? I mean? Matriarch, I think. Matriarch, yeah, matriarch, perhaps not the patriarch. Um, um, it can like, be summed up in. So we have an example of how Moiraine deals with the situation. If she'd been a green, she would be the kind of person who would try and sleep with Rand. Because, absolutely. Because to a green, Rand is more of a person. To Moiraine, the more important thing is. Rand as the symbol, Rand as the dragon, not mm-hmm. Randall Thor. Yeah, yeah, and w- like when she arrives in time to save Matt from the dark, or like I said, heal Matt from the dark hound saliva. It, this was, as Jordan himself used in his wording during the scene, spectacular. I think is was the word that he that he used. I mean, mm. she's literally arriving on the scene in a full out sprint. She's got her skirts hiked up for more like mobility. She's out of breath. Um... And also, as a side note, and no, I'm not about to make a lecherous comment about Moiraine bearing her legs, okay? <laughs> Thank you. But the maidens, of the, the, that was f***ing cool. The idea that Moiraine can dash through the camp like that, and the maidens can see her, and their first thought is, oh, she's running towards danger. Let's follow and dance the spears. So yep. badass. Again. Yep, just everyone on the same page. Exactly. <laughs> so this stuff. is something that I, I mentioned in The Shadow Rising. The Maiden's respect for Moiraine and, and, you know, by extension, everybody else's respect for Moiraine speaks volumes about that strength of character. And I use those exact words, strength of character. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more great things to say about Moiraine as this book continues. Oh, hell yeah. We absolutely Um, will. Matt, um, nothing really dramatic or exciting although there are some cool moments with matt in the early parts of this book like his uh uh um, dare or the bet mm-hmm. with that scene was very nice um his worry over rand is uh interesting yeah yeah, it the, is. Way, the way it's framed from his point of view lends a certain color to the question mm-hmm yeah. At this point in the in the book, I think Matt is still more fun than he is important. Like that when Rand's walking through Roydeon and Matt calls out to him and he doesn't answer, and then Rand yeah. says, or Matt says, "Loose Theron," 
And then he stops. Yeah, yeah. Chills. Right. Ominous. You're just like, oof. Very <laughs> ominous. Yeah. I really enjoyed the scene. Like, Matt's first scene. Awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. It begins with him, like, half drunk, and he's betting the Aiel, and he's throwing the knives, and he's making all the, the increasingly ludicrous bets, and he finally he meets Melindra. Melindra, Matt. Yeah, I was, uh, so my, my main note for, uh, Matt is, uh, congrats on the sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I That's, mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he lost his virginity earlier in the Stone of, at least in the Stone of Tear, when he was talking about the, uh, the serving girls and then the other Ooh, ladies that enjoy a kiss I and don't a cuddle. Think so. You don't think he lost his virginity quite at that point? He just made no. out a lot and then went home with blue balls? I am, I am, uh, fairly certain, like, call it 95% certain Matt lost his virginity to Melindra. Okay. And I, I can see why you'd think that. I, I, I'm, I'm like, Actually, I think I would agree with that. At least mostly, because I'm like sixty percent certain he lost with it with other like, like maids and and like waitresses and things around along the way. And he he likes fooling around, but he doesn't sleep with all of them. Like he's he's. But you're like, saying he didn't sleep with any of them until Melindra. I don't know. Correct. I don't quite know that. Just his his specific wording in the Dragon Reborn. These other serving girls and maids that enjoy a kiss, a kiss and, and a cuddle, cuddle is not sleeping. Together. I know, but that's also <laughs> that he's not going to say he enjoys. Around. Railing this chick and banging the head. He's not. <laughs> Jordan's not going to say that. How would no, what, how would Matt say it? What a kiss it? and a cuddle tells me is like uh, he got the third base. How would Matt say it then if he got laid? Uh, I don't. I don't think he. Uh, we don't really exactly. Have he any would just examples of that would, any time in the book. I don't think he would have talked about it at all. If no, he he, he wouldn't probably. But thing. like I don't know. I just if, I, by, I, by the yeah. fact that he said, "Oh yeah, kiss and a cuddle. That's great." Like. That tells me he didn't sleep with them. That maybe he got the third base. It's funny now that you mentioned. He got a nice yawn. A, a, a handy, handy from that. Uh... <laughs> I, I don't yeah, know. Wow. Is that, <laughs> that was your virginity when you. Got we, a handy? we really jumped the shark on this episode, didn't we? Yeah, a nice, a nice old-fashioned. Um, but yeah. now that I'm thinking about it, the conjugal act is never actually like he never says any of the words that describe sex he never says sex or or uh coupling would might be but a, but my betting. point here is that when never, characters have sex robert jordan makes it very clear mm. like, like yeah it's not like it's having matt not a question you know this dark hound scene for instance where matt and melindra are sleeping naked in the same bed like like yeah. I wonder what happened you there. Know, things like that. Whereas in the Stone of Tear, we don't ever get the impression that Matt is like staying in the same room with a maid. It's like, oh, he's like, you know, fooling around a little bit, and then they split off. You know, I I never got that impression. I would also argue that we see a lot of that same behavior later in the series with Aludra. He just kind of has a very, you know. Not as a very casual show up, make out, take off sort of relationship, right? Yep. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, okay, you may have you may have convinced me, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But uh, I want to move on to Perrin. Cool. Or the lack of Perrin. And or the uh, lack and I, of such. Yeah, I only have one one comment about Perrin as well. Congrats on the sex. <laughs> That's <laughs> what you think he you think he also didn't lose his virginity until he got married. Oh, Perrin, certainly. Well, well, no, like, all, all I'm saying is that during this book, Perrin is on his honeymoon. 
Like, oh, that's okay. why we don't get oh, any yeah, parent yeah. points of view. Like, Got you. Okay. <laughs> thank God. Congrats on the yeah. copious amount of sex. Is what he's you uh, say. he's in, in the post-wedding phase. Yeah. I'm not sure my so. spirit could survive seeing how pussy-whipped he would be in the bedroom with Fael. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I will say I'm not convinced that he had sex with Fael before they got married, room, but they did share a room in the Stone of Tear, so I'm also not convinced that they didn't. Yeah, uh, I it's think that one's left a lot more nebulous. Like we don't get any scenes of like Perrin and Fayul naked in their room the way we get scenes of Matt and Melindra. You know, sure. multiple scenes of Matt and Melindra. Yeah, <laughs> um, or Randon Avienda, or Randon Avienda, or Randon Min. Yeah. Yep. Um. Anyway, but or Randon and Elaine later. Yeah, I I do want to just bring that up though. Uh, kind of tie back a character point to a style point. Uh, this is um the first book in the series where all together one of our main characters does not appear. Mm -hmm. And it's one of three books in the series that this happens in. Uh, we get one book with no Matt and we get one book with no Egwene. And other than that, uh, uh, every book features at least some of every major character. Some. <laughs> so, very but loose wait, refresh you. my memory. Which is the one with no Egwene? Winter's Heart. Yeah. Speaking of, it's funny because she's on the cover of Winter's Heart. Favorite. No, she's not. No, she's not. That's, That's not Egwene. The cover is Perrin. The cover of Winter's Heart is Perrin. What? Do you, what? I thought that was Egwene with the stole and the staff. No. And the big burly. No. Guy with an axe. And the Menethrin banner. So who, and the Menethrin. Oh, banner. I didn't. I didn't catch on. <laughs> and, and the guy heel. Dude, I haven't <laughs> looked at the cover for Winter's Heart. Mine. That's one of my books that the cover was ripped off when I was like seventeen. I haven't replaced that one since. Oh yeah, no. uh... uh the, the cover of that is definitely Perrin. Uh, so so who's the who's living on the horse with the staff and the shawl? Not maybe not either Anora or Barrelane. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, and anyway, so but I think it is important for us to touch on this that this is the I think the third biggest book in this series. I'd have to double check the word counts. A Memory of Light might be longer than Fires of Heaven, but I'm pretty sure Fires of Heaven is the third longest. And it altogether does not have parent. Like, it, it, as much as there are valid complaints some people have about maybe a lack of restraint on Robert Jordan's part with, you know, certain plot lines and, and, yeah. and how, <laughs> how spread out the series gets, this is a remarkable authorial decision to not have anything from one of your essentially five main characters which i approve of uh in essence yeah no i i don't have a problem with it at all i just think it's a, a really uh interesting writing choice to dig into where you have a book that is probably 370 360,000 words mm. and already shows you know some people would argue some signs of bloat yeah. And yet the author was aware enough to say, listen, I don't have anything worth putting in yeah. for this one character, so I'm not even going to bother with him. Oh, I totally think Jordan is self-aware about his numerous characters and all of that stuff. I I simply think that he does it for this, the simple and totally sufficient reason that he enjoys writing that way. Yeah, and he enjoy, and we presumably enjoy reading that way. And if he can find we're... something that he enjoys doing that also happens to expand yeah. upon his world building, it's a you know it's a nice pairing. 
and, and maybe maybe there is some legitimacy to the claims that he goes a little overboard sure. but it's not like you're saying it's not black and white like some yeah. he clearly has restraint when he has nothing to go on with these characters, and he just he he doesn't have a problem not, with leaving it's not them out. That bad yet? Not no, five. and I will say like when it, uh, as we'll see later down the road, he was again very self-aware and publicly self-aware about what he considered his uh, mistakes with Crossroads of Twilight. I mean, he mm-hmm. talked openly about like I wish I wrote this book a different way, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know that's that's yeah. fair. I I think that's a a a good sign for the writer. Um, yeah, we all do that as artists. We we look back on the things that we did and we would have done them differently. Oh, that's yeah. that that much is inevitable. They're they're a product of where we were at the time that they were created, which makes yeah. them special. Maybe it doesn't make them as good as they could be, but perfection is that elusive goal. That yeah, if you yeah. try and chase it down, you're never going to get anywhere. And Jordan clearly understands this. Yeah. So, uh, I, are we done with characters then? Do we have any other yeah, characters I'd... we want to touch on? Okay. So, my last character point that I wanted to discuss is with Elaine. It's just one thing. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to say that Elaine is starting uh, starting to bother... Well, I don't want to say starting, but she's continuing to bother me a little bit. This time it's with her infatuation with tom Marilyn, because <clears throat> yeah know, oh, yeah yeah uh hypocrisy aside come on could you imagine if her like could you imagine elaine's reaction if Egwene passed news to elaine that rand was acting similarly with literally anyone um I, I jordan's still walking a kind of kind of troubling line i mean elaine has finally figured out who tom Marilyn is and remembers him more as like this parental figure than anything else yet jordan chooses to play around with a more freudian style regard that she has toward him i guess is how i'll put it yeah i mean i'm definitely not a behavioral psychologist i cannot speak with any authority on the sort of young woman challenging her mother's territory sort of interactions that we're seeing here but i will say that with the raging hormones of a 13 year old younger me younger rob was going yeah go tom Marilyn." But, (laughs) again, now that I'm 10 years (laughs) older than Elaine, it just reads childish. And I I really don't blame Tom for his sort of blatant, occasionally rude disregard. You know, Tom Marilyn, everyone, what a stand-up guy. When he bitch slaps her, that was probably the right thing to do. (laughs) More gays that way? That was, I mean, um... questions of physical abuse aside, that was a, you know... She's an ice. His heart was in the right place. Well, in training. Yes. You can't make the physical disparity argument. How can I said I Here's a question. The, the so-called weaker person can how, use fucking magic. How can I said I channel when they are that blasted? Like uh, are they actually just as I imagine they're not as proficient as they are when they're sober. Oh yeah, your your weaves are probably going to fall the hell apart. Oh man. Yeah, oh, probably. Interesting. But yeah, unless you're just a drunk and you're just used to it. Yeah, you're a functional alcoholic, I said I. You you can't make your weaves form unless you're hammered. Could you imagine being able to get rid of the hangover though by just asking a friend and just, hey, you know, heal me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that, that would great. that would do it. Um, so anything else you guys want to touch on, Buddy Lane? Well, or so, yeah, I do want to, to touch there? on that. I like Elaine has her faults as a character. Um I I still like in general I like her, um, like more than I dislike her. 
Uh, but this early part of the book, from the very first time I read The Fires of Heaven, bothered me. I I don't know, like it it, it you you said it was like childish. I I would just say like it, it felt very immature of her. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. That's um, that's probably a better way to put it. And I I can't really. Like I can't really justify why she does that, and like you said, yeah. I'm not and a behavioral psychologist. Like yeah. I, I can't. I'm not yeah. qualified yeah. to dig in to that kind of stuff. But to me, it seems at least like there should have been more of an emotional upheaval that would have led to this than her just finding out or remembering that Tom used to be like a yeah. father figure like like okay what okay here's how about this what if that earlier example that i just gave of could you imagine if elaine found out that rand was acting that way with somebody else <sighs> could could that have been a properly catalytic event do you think to like to justify this maybe with elaine yeah. right what i think the problem here is and this might be controversial but i think this section was written badly because if we don't have enough information to go on, and if this is coming so out of the blue that we're scratching our heads, puzzling over, well, what the hell is going on and just why is where's it going the, on? It's just, where's the justification? We, yeah. should have gotten, we should have gotten a few more details. He should have given us a few more clues. I would say just outright, this is something that should get cut from the TV show. Yeah. I don't think uh, Yeah, that wouldn't bother me at all. Like, we, we don't need this. You know, th this is a... We probably won't like get a that weird in the show, random aside of like character analysis that I can't see that being Robert Jordan wanted to throw yeah. into his book and and I don't think it adds any value to the story. Um and I think this is part of why a lot of people will complain about Elaine and Nynaeve in The Fires of Heaven specifically. Uh they tend to concentrate on Val and Luca's show. Yeah. But this is sort of the beginning of that whole weird mentality and dynamic between them. Yeah. So, I don't know. And I've heard some people say they want Val and Luca's show to be cut from the show as well, the TV show. Um, personally, I don't. I enjoy the hell out of those scenes. You know what? Yes. Yeah, earlier I had been uh, asked that question, what I would cut from the TV show. I think that would be a great answer. Val and Luca's whole menagerie. That's That stands up there as something you could cut. In terms of like, I mean, just you could, but I hope structure. they don't. And no, why in particular? It, I think they're fun. I, I get funny. a crack yeah, out of fun, those scenes. But we it's, Luca, it's comedic relief. Luca man, hitting man. on Nynaeve. Oh yeah, Nynaeve just, just be like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, just Luca's ridiculousness. Yeah, yeah. we'll have a lot more so of that to talk about in the future. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, we'll we'll deal with that later. But but yeah, I I think uh, with that, I don't have any more character. Uh, things to discuss yeah. i, I want to acknowledge there's a lot going on with min and swan but i didn't write down anything to talk about regarding them no I, i'm yeah, gonna have be... more to say with them once yep. they reach saladar i imagine so. i will too quite cool uh, uh yeah so i want to move on to uh our, our lore segment okay cool um I, obviously i don't have a ton for the uh first 16 chapters of the fires of heaven because there isn't a ton of like really cool lore stuff going on, but there are a few things. Um, one is a, another common misconception I've seen on the forums and stuff. And, and this one really baffles me is that, uh, going back to the shadow rising with Matt's, uh, die and live again answer from the Aelfin. Yeah. 
I see a lot of people say they thought he died during the Darkhound attack. What? And Rand's Balefire here saved him. Whoa, I thought you were about to say died hanging from the tree. I had no idea well, well, that so people that is thought another he died. Common one. Like, that's the most common one. That's why I yeah, thought yeah. you were going to say that. I but had no I've idea that seen... there was a subset of fans that think he died from the Darkhound attack? Yeah, I've seen a lot of people, what? like, they'll be like, oh, the saliva on his arm killed him, and, and Rand had uh, his Balefire. But I was like, what Rand says, if... no. Yeah, if like that had he, happened he as much as he remembers, dead. then I would not have been able to save him. She specifically yeah. says that. Yeah. We get the part that he that happened that he that unhappens. But people should be able to put yeah. together yeah. that judging by Moiraine's words, well, that could be a logical be impossibility. Able to yeah, do a lot of I, I just I'm baffled by this and I just want to okay. like no, fully yeah. clear the air because yeah. like, no, Matt never dies. <laughs> Uh, like he's he's there, like at the door with the Darkhound slobbering on his arm when Rand Balefires. Like he's not lying dead on the floor when Rand Balefires the Darkhounds. Matt is still standing and alive, so he never dies. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So so there's that one. Um. He just does uh, something else. But... What we should do for lore next time is see if we can look at that list of Tirongrial and stuff that's taken from Roydion. And see if we can either track down how much of it we can actually other other identify. references to it, and see if we can figure out what any of it actually does. If there's right. ever been mention of that, that kind would of be thing. interesting. That would be super uh, interesting. I, I just worry that our episodes there's would just be much like two and a half hours long at that point. On that, we have lots but, planned for the future. But it, it would be something to maybe like I would dig out the companion and see if there's anything in there. Yeah. Ooh, I have um, a companion just ten feet to my left. Uh, but yeah, and and then, um, lore wise, uh, that's pretty much it cool. for me. Uh, Rob, do you have any questions on lore? I have, yes, I have two questions for you, and then I just have a list of random miscellaneous impressions as I got as I read through that I've been doing so far. But my questions for you, Drew, two of them. <laughs> my first one is so. Um, this is the second time in this book, first from Perrin's point of view and the second from Nynaeve's point of view, where we heard Brigitte mention the prescripts. So, from context, I assume it has something to do with how the dead heroes interact with those in the waking world who, mm -hmm. who walk the dream. But do we have any more information than that? Like, what are these prescripts that she's talking about? Do we know? Uh, no, uh, I've never seen anything more concrete. Uh, I was always just under the impression that this was something the collected Heroes of the Horn uh, came up with during their time in Teleron Riyadh, where they're like, all right, listen, you know, we're, we're in here for most of the time. Uh, we need to have some rules for how we handle it. Or maybe okay. they were given to the heroes. But who would have given them? The creator? The creator doesn't. I, I wouldn't consider that no taking a hand. Especially because but the, the prescripts could have been the like something horn, the, 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 the horn is never described itself. as being a tool of the creator. It is the pattern. They're tied to the pattern. They're not tied to the creator. The pattern is a is an impersonal sort of like machine. Vehicle, yes. Yeah, and and so I I think this is much more uh that's cool. like, like the that. heroes themselves came up with rules for you, how they would you act. you got to admit that it's actually in line with the creator's policy of non-interventionalism because that's exactly what the prescripts... I mean, they may have modeled it after that, but I don't see the creator... Because the creator doesn't specifically, like, choose the heroes of the horn. Yeah. 
Yeah. So so I don't see any circumstance in which the creator's just like, yeah. Oh, the pattern picked all of you guys. Well, I'm gonna tell you what to do now. But in essence, okay, they say despite... spun out by the wheel specifically. That's yeah. The verbatim they use spun out by the wheel. So does the wheel have some sort of consciousness? Oh, no, this is so no. fucking meta that we're going now. Holy yeah. God. It. Yeah. We're. This is something. Uh, uh, you know, if we ever have Matt Hatch on as a guest, uh, we can dig into. We he's do a he's super the super meta episode. Yeah, he's he's pretty Think much uh, the guy who who has delved the deepest into the metaphysics of I the Wheel love of Time. To do a super meta episode and have him on there. Yeah, That'd be uh, awesome. Um, he's the founder of Theoryland.com. If that you know tells you anything, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he he knows his stuff when it comes to the metaphysics and like parallel worlds and perpendicular worlds and mirror yeah, yeah. worlds and and all that. Um, uh, but I I think. The best answer I can give without, you know, jumping on Theoryland into the interview database or digging through the companion uh, to see if there are more concrete answers there is that they are just rules the the heroes collectively agree, to agree abide upon. By. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, my second question, my last one, uh, it's about a particular dream that Egwene had. And I don't remember hearing it as like in this pass of the audiobook, but apparently Egwene, because I was looking up, you know, chapter summaries beforehand, um, just to make sure I was still fully in the in the moment with this first third of the book. Apparently, Egwene had a dream where she sees Rand, and I quote, sitting in a chair, and somehow he knew that the chair's owner would be murderously angry at having her chair taken. That the owner was a woman was as much as she could pick out of that, and not a thing more. What the hell was that? Uh, this cannot be the Sean Chen crystal throne because no, he never sat directly in it, uh, nor I, did he assume any sort of leadership role over the Sean Chen ever. So isn't it obvious? It's it's the Rose Throne. It's Camelin. Uh huh. Oh, that's. I had just read it again, and it, okay. Sorry, that should have made yeah. sense to me right away. Okay. Yeah. Even though Rand doesn't ever it's sit right here in front in of me, the throne, he symbolically rules Andor. Yeah, and, and that's right. Elaine is, is infuriated that he declares he wants to yeah. give it to her instead of step yeah. back, right? Okay. No, that makes total yep. sense. Right. Especially because like so much of this book is geared toward an ultimate confrontation in Camelin. You know. Yeah. Like that's just another piece yeah. toward the ultimate puzzle of the fires Point. of heaven. Yeah. Um, should I just dive into my miscellaneous impressions then of things that I read? Uh, actually, we have a couple of listener questions. Oh, do that we? I think we should discuss. I didn't even know we had those. Yeah, uh, Sweet. a couple of these are actually rather meta, so I think. Oh, we can, right on. Yeah, have some fun here. Uh, we have Wolfen McCoy on Facebook asks: Rings Does the pattern weave the same in each turn of the wheel, or does each spinning create more change and move more and more away from the vision of the creator? So I, I think uh, we we have an easier answer to the first of those two questions, and that is, uh, I do not believe the pattern weaves the same in each turn of the wheel. Uh, you may have some of the same souls spun out. Things like uh, Ishamael's soul and the dragon's soul, and the gambler, uh, are, and, yeah, and the gambler, um, and and the heroes of the horn. Uh, you you have these recurring themes, but. As the gathering storm shows us, uh, with Rand's um, kind of apotheosis on Dragon Mount, uh, humanity does have free will, 
and it is a a choice on how people get to live their lives. The pattern may restrict choice in some ways, but it does not lock you into doing certain things. Uh, so I do not believe the pattern ever weaves the same in turnings of the wheel. Uh, do you guys agree with me there? I yeah. agree. I, yeah, I even think that it's uh, somewhat backed up by Ishamayel's claims. I think at one point we heard him say that he had, or at least claimed that he had fought Rand you know, a, a thousand times, a thousand times a thousand, each time wearing a different face, each time wearing a different name or whatever. Yeah. I, I yeah, think yeah, that yeah. goes to show that the, the, though there are certain things that are not, uh, you know, there are certain things that are repeated. It's not, it's, it's still unique every time. You know, right. it was, there are neither beginnings nor endings, but it was a beginning and it was Correct. an ending. Yeah. So. Not the next beginning of the repetition of the same thing that's always happened. Right. Yeah. Now, his second question, I think, is something we can dig into a little more. Okay. Same, so uh, he, same he says, does each spinning of the wheel change more and more away from the vision of the creator? Yes. Now, I think this is uh, begging the question a little bit here. Uh, he's assuming that the wheel weaves a specific vision of the creator. I don't think the creator ever had a vision like that. Uh, the creator is always demonstrated as a a more apathetic deity. Uh, the creator created and then stepped away. And has only... That's definitely how it reads. Has only ever paid attention when the uh, uh, the existence of his creation is threatened directly. So we get him, like, for instance, talking to Rand at the end of Eye of the World and in a memory of life. And that's like the most the creator pays attention. So I don't I don't think there's necessarily a vision of the creator I in the first place. I would quibble with your use of the phrase paying attention. Yeah, I was just about I to think bring that he, up. I think he would always be watching, but re- but but still because because what's the alternative? It's like you make something and then you just walk away from it. Well, then what was the point of what was the point of making it in the first place if you're not if you don't care about it? And I mean, obviously he does care about it because he, you know, he's mm-hmm. addressing Rand in this Yeah, perhaps I had a, a poor word choice there, but right. I I don't think the creator specifically Yeah, I don't think he made yeah. everything for this infinite cycle to occur where the same things happen every time and I want it to go this way. I think he created to see what would happen. Right. So, so in that speak. sense, the creator doesn't really have a vision yeah, that yeah. the pattern is conforming or not conforming to. Yeah. It's all so, just, it's all what he wanted from the beginning anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so that second question, uh, Open to uh, is, interpretation, of course. Certainly open to interpretation, but I, I think it is begging the question. It, it's yeah. assuming that the creator had a vision in the first place. Read me that second half, uh, the second part question again. It says, does each spinning of the wheel change more and more away from the vision so, of the creator? Here's something I want to bring up. This is something I had actually brought up, I think, in The Great Hunt Part 2. Um, I did bring up the fact that I noticed with... Uh, Rand's visions while he was traveling through the portal stone that each successive vision that we got a huge spiel on 
was perhaps slightly more and more removed from the reality that actually happened. For example, the first vision that he got in the portal stone, he, I think he, uh, he missed with the uh, kettle, or he didn't throw the hot kettle at the Trolloc's head, and it just ran him through. And then the second one was slightly different, where Moiraine didn't even come to the two rivers. And the third one was where mm-hmm. not only did Moiraine not, uh, Moiraine not even arrive in the two rivers, but the third one was that he just left on his own accord, on his own journey. Like, yeah. and at that point, I said, do you think each successive vision in the portal stone could be perhaps more and more removed from this actual spinning of the wheel? So, I don't know. Right. Now, hearing this question, it, they're kind of... Right? Could Or am I, like, reaching here? Are they, well, like, I feel like you're, you're kind of trying to tie uh, the reality that has already occurred to some future vision of the creator, and I think that's also making an assumption there. Yeah, I could, uh, that's fair. I agree. Um, I, I, I don't believe the creator had some ultimate plan for everybody and everything when the world was created. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there was a vision for these turnings of the wheel to move away from in the first place. Sweet. Uh, but so Wolf and McCoy actually has a, another pretty meta question here. Oh yeah. Um, and he asks, who is the creator? Given that the dark one gave us free will, should we truly want to be like either of them? He says humanity lives between extremes. And now, uh, again, I'm not entirely certain that this is, I don't even know how to begin answering this one. Like, yeah. like I think he's, again, begging the question a little bit. Uh, I don't think necessarily the Dark One gave us free will. I don't think the Dark One gave humanity anything. I think yeah. no, the, it's the... interaction between the two that gives humanity free will. Yeah, it's it's the fact that evil and good exist uh, that gives humanity free will, that gives humanity choices. Um, there was no, like operative choice on the part of the dark one to say well you created humanity so i'm gonna give them free will so there or something like that yeah the i don't think the dark one possesses that kind of power over the creator's creation exactly he he is a force uh that's sort of in and out of it that can act on it but he he's he's not that he's not that profound or mm-hmm. fundamental to the uh and the, and the Dark One was sealed away from the pattern, yeah. outside the pattern, at the moment of creation, so how could he have I'm really curious, acted upon creation? I'm really curious to know um, where this idea that the Dark One gave gave humanity free will came from. I, I, I guess maybe an interpretation of the end of A Memory of Light. Yeah, I'll uh, but, that. But yeah. Uh, I, now, one thing to be, uh, one distinction that we can draw, or should draw, Mm-hmm. Here between the creator, the creator and the dark one, the the creator is not like the Christian God. Let's say he yes. does not act like that at all. However, the dark one is very similar to Satan. Yes. So, so it's like yeah, on you know the one half of the spectrum is something like what we are culturally familiar with, and the other is not. And it's easy for a reader to then read these books and try to assign the attributes of the Christian God to the creator right. because the Dark One is so similar to Lucifer. Correct. That's exactly what yeah. I'm getting at. Um, and we should be leery of that. Yes, I, I very much agree there. 
Um, and, and so Wolf and McCoy actually had a third question, and this is this will be our last question for the day. Um, and I think this is a really interesting question, and, and we'll see how into this we get. Uh, he asks, should the gender-based magic be revisited if the Wheel of Time were written today? And he says there is a lot of room for conflict that was never explored. What do you mean by revisiting? Interesting. So he he wants to rewrite. Or so he's so asking he, he's basically discussing this the the kind of societal shift in thinking toward things like transgender and gender dysphoria, uh, and how Robert Jordan's magic system draws very firm lines between male and female. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I I can only speak to my opinion on this question, but my firm answer would be no, because society may have changed but the the facts of biology that robert jordan based the magic system on have not changed and yep. cannot change at least in a period that's so short as yeah and and that's where years. that's where i would have gone to is that people like to discuss the one power as a gender based thing but it's not it's genetically driven we know for a fact in these books, the ability to channel is determined by genetics and by soul. And souls are given, are, are assigned sexes. Like the dragon's soul, for instance, the dragon will always be a man. And if the pattern needs a woman in a role like that, there is a different soul that will be spun out to take that, uh, you know, sure, whatever, okay, whatever need. And, and so when a body like a human being is like genetically uh, like male or female, I think that was more what Jordan was going for than this idea of like sexuality or, or, um, you know, in does a that sense, make sense? Like, in a sense. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, and I'm, I'm right there with you, but it is sort of an interesting question. Like let, I, I don't believe this. But let's just say there were a multitude of genders. Mm -hmm. That could have some interesting implications on the magic system of the Wheel of Time if that right. were so. Right. However, that's... Well, and, and where, where I think ultimately it comes down to is what Robert Jordan was going for with, with his magic system here was... Mutual beneficiality. Yeah, it, it yeah. was a conversation... Exactly. Among different kinds of people. And and I don't think we need to alter the magic to Yeah, see that's improve that. You know, that's like, that's yeah, what I want to focus on with my response um, to that question. Uh is it needed? I don't ever think it's needed. Of course it's the author's right to write the magic system to work how they want it to work based on their own beliefs, right. even if they want it to. Right. I that said, if I were to nowadays conceive of a magic system that i wanted to write about that did depend so heavily on the divisions between male and female in this climate in 2019 i would at least think of some brief answers to those questions because i know they're going to come but at the time in which robert jordan wrote these novels that wasn't really such a huge societal issue well right so but he's asking if this does were it rewritten to today if it were written today yeah if it were written like I don't know. If I were writing this today and this wasn't a thing and I, I had somehow conceived of this, I would probably just think of some brief 
answers to those questions. I wouldn't delve too deeply into it, but I would just, you know, I would expect those questions to come and I would probably at least think of some responses, if not change how I'm going to do the magic system. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, like, if if Robert Jordan wrote this today, I think he would have written it the same way. Yeah. And I yeah. think if people brought up things like, oh, well, what about people who are genetically hermaphroditic or, you know, something like that, he would say, well, they don't have the gene to channel. Yeah, or I would throw something forth like it's a 50-50 chance. There you go. It's just how you got to deal with, you know? One One last little comment about the hermaphroditic thing is, like, it would be kind of an interesting anomaly Ooh. in the Wheel of Time universe if you I know could where you're simultaneously going. channel Saiyadine and Saiyadine. To have an, a mysterious individual were, who can just do both? If, well, oh my I, god, but, that would have been so but, fascinating to read, wouldn't it? That would I will be kind also of cool. say be kind of cool. this is a post-utopian world. There is post-utopia. A, a zero like chance it. that in it's the true. Age of Legends they didn't experiment with genetics. Yeah. And they could have done something that essentially removed the possibilities of, like, you know, yeah. uh, a genetic hermaphrodite or something I'd argue, like that. Jordan probably made his stance very clear when he made Osengar but, and Arangar, seeing that that's how both of those souls were feet or were male originally, and they were both drawing upon Sidene. Yes. Despite yes. the fact that one was reincarnated, well, well, well yeah, and, and that's body. why, uh, as I said, like it's it's, it's genetic and tied it's to soul. It's encoded in your so, soul, not so much yeah. in the body. Yeah. Right. 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 If the transmigration cool. probably wouldn't have worked if they put um, Agonor or uh, uh, Balthamel's soul into a, the body of a female who could have channeled. Yeah. Genetically. Oh no, Ooh. I think it's about the soul. No, I, th I think it's still would have worked. No, no, no. I don't know about that. Because, well, yeah, let's say the person could have channeled the woman. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, I don't think it would have worked. I think they needed a blank slate. Or to could that have been a really neat to... justification for how it did work in your hypothetical I have scenario? A theory oh, about that would this. be so fucking cool. I have a theory about this that we'll dig into later, and uh, part of that theory is that I don't think it matters what the new body can do mm. at that point. Um, and and uh, or or rather, no, uh, excuse me. I think it does matter that the new body can has that genetic ability to channel that that key is turned, so to speak, mm. and then the soul determines whether it's side R or side E. Well, I'll look forward to hearing the full yeah. explanation. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that right? like closer to, I think, uh, the Path of Daggers or... Um, Crown of Swords. Uh, or a little later. Um, but yeah, so those are those are all the listener questions we have yep. for today. So before we move into the final draft, I want to just, uh, you know, any last thoughts yeah, on the I wanna, first third of Fires of Heaven? I want to get reactions out of the way just for some simple things that I read here. Um, I just want to point out that we haven't talked about what I consider to be the most ominous of Min's viewings at this point, and that is the aura of glory around Loghain. Oh, yeah. That, when I was reading it, was a huge source of my interest. I was like, holy crap, when is this going to pan out? And if you had gone back and told 13 to, you know, however old I was when I was like 23 when this last book came out, how long it would take before that vision actually came true... Mm -hmm. Oh, it would have killed me. Yeah, yeah. Would have killed me. Uh, I do funny. also. Want... I don't. No, go ahead. I don't remember the first time reading through this. I don't remember if I even had an idea of what that glory might have been. Well, I figured I know in book after six, a certain point in that the I knew series, what it was. I I was like, oh well, he's gonna end up leading the Black Tower. Yes. But but at the time in the Fires of Heaven, 
the Black Tower didn't exist. We didn't even know about the possibility of the right. Ashaman. Like, you know, like... I, I made a hasty assumption in the future once I had finished books 6, 7, and 8, and 9, and I was like, okay, I think I know what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and it's involved, of course, but we didn't, you know, we didn't see it pan out until very, 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 very late yeah. in the series. <laughs> um... So, yeah, so my, my second miscellaneous uh, react, uh, thought or reaction here is that this isn't the first time that we've seen Balefire. We haven't discussed really Balefire yet, or it, it, like, it's not even the second time we've seen Balefire. Oh, my gosh. It's the I first time. I forgot my other uh, lore point. Yeah. Sorry, go on, go on. It's the first time that we get some solid information about this hitherto mysterious weapon. Like, this book, after all, it's called The Fires of Heaven. So, yeah. like, we finally learn about its terrible power and its potential to cause massive repercussions throughout the pattern itself. Like, that was pretty cool. So, go ahead with what you want to say. Yeah, so, uh, we see Rand facing off against, um, uh, some dark, dark hounds, right? Yep. Uh, he needs to use, uh... Balefire to kill them. The Dark Hounds we saw in the Dragon Reborn, Perrin killed a Dark Friend with an arrow. Now, yep. an arrow would not kill a Dark Hound. There is a functional difference. There, there are different generations of Dark Hounds. There is a new breed, essentially, that was created very recently that only Balefire can kill. And those are the Dark Hounds sent after Rand. The old Wild Hunt was, like, the old school ones that, like, you can kill. Obviously, they're tough to kill. They're fast. They're, you know, super dangerous. But you can kill them with normal means. Yeah. Whereas these are only <clears throat> able to be killed with Balefire. Very interesting. I had no idea about that. That's, they, see, I'm, on, I'm on Pat's boat. I had no idea about that. Do we that. know and, who made them? I was considering asking you when I saw how these dark hounds kind of split and, and like inkily ran across the floor and reformed, and I was like, I don't remember that happening in the the later books. But sorry, yeah. uh, Pat's question. Oh, I just asked if we had any idea who created them. Uh, not as assume, far as I know. Okay. I would assume Agnor, Agnor, but we don't know that because we just I, know I that don't he think Agnor because and, and he all. he got out of the the boar. He got out of the prison and went straight to the eye of the world. Then again, the Dark Hounds are mentioned specifically in the prophecies when Trollocs and Murdralf, as far as I I know, aren't really. But like again, again, again and again, we get this kind of, um, I guess, concept or idea that when the Dark One is released, the Great Hunt rides again, or, or like the Wild Hunt rides right. again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it was mm -hmm. in the Ilioners. I think that we've heard that from so far. Yes. Perhaps in the Dragon Reborn. So. Want to say the innkeeper? Uh, well, well, there's there's the bits in the um, Nida. Uh, there's there's actual quotes in the prophecies about the this dark later on in the series. The... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, but, so yeah, but that's I, my second. Sorry. Uh, go ahead. I think that takes us uh, into the final draft. Yeah. Uh, I still yeah. have a couple of impressions I wanted to get out of the way. Sorry. Oh, I thought you said you only had a couple and you were done. Oh. Uh, yeah. In this case, a couple was was a few. Sorry. I should have I should have uh, said that uh, accurately. Uh, uh, I want to talk about how wholesome Ruark is. The dreams that Egwene stumbled into. Oh. With Ruark, he sees Egwene like you know who's who's a young, beautiful, exotic girl. Just as a daughter, 
and the way he still sees Emis as the young maiden of the spear that he fell in love with. I was just like, oh, yeah. my man, Ruark. He's he's perhaps my favorite Aielman at this point, with the possible exception oh, yeah. of, of Gaul. But oh, Ruark, like Ruark is just... <laughs> oh, he's such an awesome guy. Uh, you, you answered my question about Fork Root earlier, and about, like, uh, proportional effect on someone's ability to channel. Um... Uh, Moray, uh, you earlier you gave me the idea to ask this question. What would Moiraine's reaction to Rand possessing the Choiden Kal be if he had told her? I think she would have initially panicked. Uh, but right. given her uh, change in mentality, like what would her advice be regarding after him if he had come um, clean? I think she would have cautioned him greatly. She would have say, said like, "Don't ever use this until you have to." Um. Uh, I do think she would have been on board with him planning on using them to attempt to cleanse Siding. You do? I do. Yeah, because she would have interpreted the, that as the right he needs to... Yeah. The wrong I think initially she would have been right. really panicked at the idea, but she would have uh, given it some thought. She would have paused and not uh, reacted instantly under this new mindset yeah. she's operating on. I'm right? thinking she would have panicked and then the next day approached yeah. him and said, okay... I'm with you. Yeah. Pat, yeah. any idea? Or any... Yeah, uh, I, that, that's... Yeah, I agree with Drew. Sweet. Um, my last, very last point before we get into the final draft. Moiraine, again, has now hinted that she sees her end coming soon. At one point, I think she actually yeah. tells Rand, I won't be with you forever. Yes. And then <laughs> another, near the very end of our first third for this book, Egwene breaks the news to her that Swan Sanche has been stilled. Elida has assumed the Amarlin seat and is now ordering for Moiraine's arrest. She actually comes across the written order for Moiraine's mm -hmm. arrest. To which mm -hmm. Moiraine responds suspiciously calmly, uh, something along the lines of, there's no time for tears. And that yeah. they knew this and accepted this. And they're prepared for it. Mm -hmm. I just want to say how well Robert Jordan is foreshadowing everything that has to come with this character. Freaking right. yeah. phenomenal. Certainly, certainly. And that's everything okay. I have. All right, uh, Pat, do you have any final thoughts then? Um, only that I'm looking forward to talking about Asmodee in a week well, from now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's head into the final draft then. Rob, let's what are you it. drinking? I, today, am drinking something I've, I've never really... Something, honestly, I didn't know existed. This is from Old Tomorrow Brewing. Brewing? Brewing. You can tell it's actually uh, nice and strong by my slurred words here. I've had two of these over the course of this podcast. Um, this is called Monty's Aged Ride Ale. And on the can, near the lip, it, it claims aged with with oak wood infused with 100% Canadian rye whiskey. I hadn't realized Whoa. before opening this that it was infused with Canadian rye whiskey. It definitely tastes like it. I noticed it as soon as I cracked it open. Before I had even sipped it, I smelled the rye in there. So it, it's just described as an oak-aged ale? Oak, uh, aged with oak wood infused with 100% Canadian rye whiskey. What does it say before that? Nothing. Uh, Monty's Aged Ride Ale. I'll read you the whole side right here. Aged Big Ride bold, Ale. Okay, so yeah, it's just an flavorful. oak aged ale. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, nice. That's awesome. Uh, hints of silky caramel, vanilla, and honey. Top shelf. That's not, that, uh, yeah. uh, vanilla and honey caramel. That silky caramel right. is much better than crunchy caramel. Pro probably uh, <laughs> probably like a brown ale of some sort that they threw yeah, um, yeah, I mean, uh, oak chips in. All it did, I mean, it's 6.2% alcohol by volume, and all it did was make me want to drink rye. I love my rye. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I'm drinking today. Monty's Aged Ride Ale from Old Tomorrow Bre uh, Brewing. 
Nice. That's a that's a great choice. Uh, Pat, what were you drinking? I started out with uh, Mike's Hard Lemonade, the black cherry variety, which is nice. the best oh, yeah, of yeah. the... Uh, nice. except, for, <laughs> except for the blood orange one, which... What? Which existed for a time, and then I think I believe it was discontinued, which is a crime because oh. you can't have something <laughs> as delicious great. as the blood orange and replace it with bull like the watermelon or whatever, <laughs> whatever they did to replace it. Okay. And then for well. my second beer, Drew is going to explain what I had because we've been sharing this. Yeah, but it, in my opinion, it was delicious. It was it does exactly what a beer like that ought to do, in more ways than one. Yeah, so uh, I brought uh, a six-pack of, of these guys, so I gave Pat one. Um, it is a Cabernet Barrel-aged Belgian wit beer. So Ooh. it's a like an unfiltered wheat uh, aged in Cabernet wine barrels with Britannomyces, which is a, kind of a strain of, you know. And um, it, it's very tart. Very sour, a little funky from that Britannomyces there. Uh, really, really tasty. Uh, yeah, Pat is a <laughs> doing Pat's the, a big fan. Doing the funk. Uh, yeah, it's from Snowbank Brewing Company in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is a, a little place. Uh, they kind of uh, fly under the radar in Fort Collins with how many breweries we have here, but they do good stuff. Um, and and this beer is my ode to Perrin's absence in the first part of oh, the Fires God. of Heaven here. And honestly, I, I wish this beer had come out, like, a week ago, so I could have done this for the end of the Shadow Rising, because it would have really? been perfect. It is called Wolf's Wedding. No, it's not. No, it's I, not. I assure no, you not. it is. No, it's not. I don't want to yes. look. I'm not looking at I'm not looking at I'm going to have to question my fucking concept of reality after this. Fuck you! No! <laughs> Put that away! Don't show it to me! Uh, how? How? Uh, Dude, how one the of these f- days, we're, we're actually going to have a beer on here called The Path of Daggers. Like, it's... Oh, no. We're getting to that point. So, you joke. <laughs> I already have a beer sitting in my fridge for not a Wheel of Time book, but a, a future book we are going to do. This beer was specifically inspired by this book. It is called the same thing as this book. Uh, beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. I I had to trade. I had to make a trade to a lady in North Carolina for that beer. I am very excited when we get to that particular book. Well, happy drinking to you all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I just screen capped my fucking face right here, so y'all can see my. <laughs> f- oh, oh, my we're, reaction. We're tweet that out. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> How the. F- yep. Yep. I, I'll tell you, I was worried. Uh, mm. I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to bring you today. You are seriously like, gaslighting me here. Like, I have, like, I, I don't trust you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand how you continue to find brews that have names that relate to the subject material this closely. I just don't. They, they can't. Uh, <laughs> jog on. Well, it's a, it's a challenge, and I'm enjoying the challenge. So I'm, I'm wow, going to keep it up dude. as long as I can. Wow. <laughs> I, have, well, I have brought a, a thematically appropriate beer every single episode since episode two. I did not have one for episode one. But from two to 37, I've brought in a thematically appropriate beer. Jesus. So. That's it. That's got to be a Guinness Book of World Record thing. <laughs> uh, 
A very niche record. A very, yeah. very niche. Uh, that said, this has been episode 37 of the Thinking mm-hmm. Out Loud podcast. Next up, we will be continuing on with the Fires of Heaven. We will cover through the end of chapter 40, uh, which will basically be the second third of the book. We'll be doing three episodes for this. And, uh, you know, if you're if you're enjoying our content, if you appreciate what we're doing, and especially if, like, check out these awesome thumbnails that our artist is making, uh, you know, all of our Patreon support is going straight toward Danny, our artist, and Pat right here, who's doing hours and hours of work every week on sound yeah, engineering and, and making and yeah, sure our, uh, our episodes are ready to go up. Um, yeah, so please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash inking out loud. There's so yeah. much more you have to gain too. Extra stuff yeah. we have planned for what's coming out. And I also want to take a second to say that looking at the, the timestamp and what I'm recording right now in Audacity, this may be our longest episode yet. Oh, it We are so like close that. to the Great Hunt Part 1. We are literally within a minute. And <laughs> my having stopped to take the time to say this may have actually made it longer. So that's why I wanted to stop and do it. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how this turns out. Maybe. Um, but that said, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yo. And our special guest and sound engineer, Patrick McCaffrey. See you guys on the other side of the Dragon Wall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>